everybody. This is The Legal Disclaimer, where we tell you that the views, thoughts, and opinions shared on this podcast belong solely to our guests and our hosts, and not necessarily Brady or Brady's affiliates. Please note that this podcast contains discussions of violence that some people may find disturbing. It's okay. We find it disturbing, too. back everyone to Red, Blue, and Brady. COVID-19 has caused a lot of really specific concerns, right, when it comes to gun violence and domestic violence. Namely that, you know, close quarters, financial anxieties, health concerns, and rising gun sales are all bringing extra stress into the home and could lead to more severe or even lethal cases of domestic violence. To discuss this, I'm joined by the great Ruth and Rachel both from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, the NCADV, which is the nation's leading grassroots voice on domestic violence. Then in our unbelievable butt segment for a little bit of levity in these times, we're talking about the risk of alcohol, karaoke, and guns. Now, finally, in our new segment, we're wrapping up with a long list of remembrances of individuals lost to gun violence. So Rachel, Ruth, thank you so much for calling in today. I know much like those who work in gun violence, those who work in domestic violence have been far busier than we would ever like to be in these last couple weeks. But, you know, just just knowing that domestic violence assaults involving a gun are are 12 times more likely to result in in a death than those involving other weapons or bodily force. Just knowing that is is a really scary statistic. And I, I want to unpack all of that and unpack what people can be doing in this time. So let's let's go ahead and jump right in. And can I start by having you two introduce yourselves? Okay, certainly. My name is Ruth Glenn. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And I'm Rachel Graber. I'm the Director of Public Policy of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Could, could you tell me a little bit about what the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, what it is that, that you do, just a little bit about your organization? The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence works with three pillars in regards to providing a voice for survivors, as well as holding users accountable and supporting advocates. We do that through many of our projects. We have a couple of programs that support that work. And then certainly on our public policy side, which is really addressing any legislative or policy issues federally that might impact domestic violence victims and survivors and or the people that provide them services. We're definitely a part of that and make sure that, to make sure that um, there's no do harm and that every available means to safety and support is, is afforded to domestic violence victims and survivors. And it, it's such a noble cause, but it's such an important cause. And I'm assuming one where, you know, as we have to talk about domestic violence in the time of of COVID-19, one that you're very concerned about. I'm, I'm assuming that you all have been exceptionally busy recently. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners, you know, a little bit about why there's such a concern about domestic violence around COVID-19. It's well known that proximity for victims of domestic violence to their abusers is always problematic, right? And in this time, when we're being asked to self-isolate, quarantine, stay at home, stay in place, whatever the terms are that are being used, 
if you are sharing a space with a potential abuser or and if someone who's already caused you harm, it only enables the abuser, these um, COVID protocols and COVID actions that need to be taken only enable the abuser to have one more tool or one more means at their disposal by which they can commit this abuse. Um, isolation being a prime factor, financial, all of those types of abuses are exacerbated during this time. So I guess the other thing that I would probably add is that, as Ruth mentioned, we know that one form of abuse that's very, very common is financial abuse. About 99% of people who experience physical violence also experience economic and financial abuse. And so you have situations in which a survivor has left an abusive relationship, has found alternate housing, has uh, a job and is rebuilding financially, but is still financially and um, housing insecure. And what we see in times of economic crisis, um, a lot of these survivors are low-wage workers. They're the first people who are laid off. And so if they don't have the financial resources to continue paying their rent, continue paying their bills, there's a higher risk that they might end up having to return to an abusive relationship in order to really have their basic financial and housing and nutrition needs met. And that's a particular concern right now because, again, we are facing a financial crisis as well as a public health crisis. We also know that due to social distancing requirements, shelter capacity is lower than normal because people just can't be as close together. So you can't fit as many people into a shelter. And so we're concerned about reduced capacity at the same time as there may be, um, and and we've heard from, from direct service providers that there's an increased need. Well, and I think there needs to be awareness too, that when we're talking about domestic violence, we're not just talking too about violence between, you know, significant others, that it's violence within the family, right? So this isn't just one particular type of violence. And as you pointed out earlier too, like it can be financial, it can be emotional, it can be physical, it can be threatening to kick someone out of their home in the time of the virus. So there's a lot of forms this could be taking too. So one size fits all solutions don't work quite so well. Right. I would I would also have us think about, you know, that there's two two pieces that you bring up, which is first, what is the, the definition of domestic violence? And it's pretty wide ranging. But we have chosen to stick with that term so that so that it is understood that in most instances it is someone who claims to whether they're male, female, no matter what socioeconomic or background or faith or whatever they come from. But it, the one that is usually committing the violence is the one who is supposed to care for you. So that that does you know give you that broad definition. Um, and then secondly, the types of violence, and you are absolutely correct that during COVID. Um, we can see, you know, I, I was speaking with someone the other day and they just couldn't believe it. And I said, you know, it's amazing um, the links that abusers will go through to keep control of a victim or survivor. And I had a picture of, of uh, and I can speak from experience. I'm a survivor of domestic violence myself, pretty horrific domestic violence. But I can see an abuser using COVID as a means by which they um, not only isolate or financial, but even use that as a threat against a victim. I will throw you outside. You'll never be allowed back in and you'll get the virus. 
you know, so there's all of these different ways COVID can exacerbate and really intensify the types of abuse that might be occurring. And then let's say add a add a firearm to that mix and and you've got some really bad news going on. But I think there's also more opportunities for power and control, both in people being isolated, yep. um, but also the COVID-19 pandemic, it really opens up new avenues of um, power and control. You know, Ruth was talking about the way that people are using the virus itself to threaten, to coerce, to control. So it's one extra tool in an abuser, abuser's arsenal, no pun intended. Well, and the the additional thing, and sort of why in particular, I, I was really excited to to speak to both of you today, because I think it's so important, is we're seeing a rise in gun sales across the board and seeing just some chatter online now about sort of the the rise in maybe domestic violence incidences that have involved a gun. And that really concerns me because I've I've read quite a bit that, you know, the number one way victims die from domestic violence is by a gun. And I was wondering if we could talk about the intersection then of guns in the home and how those can become very dangerous to people. Absolutely. So I'll start from an NCADV perspective, which is our acronym, of course. We have made guns um, and domestic violence, firearms and domestic violence, a priority of ours for years because we know that it is a dangerous intersection. And when someone has access to a weapon, a firearm, and um, they have the ability to coerce, threaten, harass, or commit, God forbid, lethal act with a gun, then domestic violence survivors are put at further danger and further risk. We lose 53 women on average a month in this United States in regards to guns, gun violence and domestic violence. That's appalling. From a from a place of we do about this, as far as our efforts and on policy and projects and prevention and those types of things, uh, they haven't changed much, but we are very, very concerned about COVID and its impact for those that are abusers who have, like I said before, much more proximity. And if they have a, a weapon, a firearm, a gun, um, it is it is very very dangerous, and the in, the intensity by which a victim might be experiencing that abuse with a firearm, I can't even imagine what that must be like. And I think that we'll, we we will see more in regards to that. I would also note that one thing that we are concerned about, and again, I don't you can't under understate the importance of social distancing and flattening the curve. So um, everything that we're saying, we are not critical of what's happening. Um, We completely support everybody's need to um, maintain public health and public safety. So with that disclaimer, one thing that we are concerned about is we're seeing a lot of courts either transitioning to providing services a different way or closing. And as you know, protective orders often either they uh, include language to prohibit respondents from possessing orders or um, under state and or federal law often prohibit uh, respondents from possessing firearms. And so in cases where court access is diminished or, or not available, 
um, we're really concerned that abusers will be able to uh, maintain control of firearms because there's no court available to issue protective orders. And we know that a lot of courts are being really flexible and innovative and um, making sure that while simultaneously complying with social distancing guidelines, they are able to still hold hearings and issue protective orders. And we really, really appreciate that, applaud that. Um, We also know that in some jurisdictions, law enforcement is being told not to respond to any crime that is not violent, which would include things like, for example, a a violation of protective order that doesn't include physical violence. So again, we, we know that a lot of our frontline domestic violence programs, shelters, advocates are working very closely with their local communities, with their courts, with their law enforcement to make sure that protective orders are still issued, protective orders are still enforced. Um, and we, again, really applaud those efforts and cannot overstate the importance of all of the work that our direct service providers are doing. They're doing an amazing job to support victims and survivors of domestic violence. And so on that end, can you tell me a little bit about the program you have, Disarm? So one of the projects that NCADV has um, is it's called Disarm Domestic Violence. It's at disarmdv.org, a collaborative effort um, between us, the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence, the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, and Prosecutors Against Gun Violence. And it's an interactive tool that helps victims and survivors understand what the laws are in their states related to domestic violence and firearms. It's a multifaceted tool. It's designed not just for victims and survivors, but also for domestic violence advocates, for lawyers, for lawmakers, for students, for um, anybody who has an interest in, in this issue. And it's state-by-state information. Um, there's a section in what I would refer to as legalese, that really drills deep down into what the statutory language actually is. There's a section specifically for victims and survivors and advocates really talking about what are the resources in your state? What can a protective order and what can a judge do for you in your state? How do you go about obtaining that? And what do you ask for when you are asking a judge for a protective order to make sure that it directly addresses the intersection between domestic violence and firearms and takes away the abuser's guns. And then also a section with public health data. So how many people are killed every year by intimate partners with firearms? How many protective orders have been submitted to um, protective order files at the in the NCIC? That sort of thing. It's a really great project. A, a lot of really amazing in-depth information and if anybody has any questions about state law and, you know, about, you know, how does the state law help them and protect them, definitely suggest folks check that out. No, that's an amazing resource that I think is available because that's that's been one of the concerns that I've had personally is just this fear of how can people get assistance, you know, particularly if you're, you know, let's, if, if home isn't a safe place for you and and home, you know, there is no space there whatsoever to get away to make a phone call to make an exit plan how can people navigate that space well and and i think you know outside of the context of guns for a second is i think our advice to survivors from a philosophical place and a kind of like higher place to a reality place and pragmatic places 
you know, victims and survivors have are really resilient and they've they've been enduring for however long, whatever it is that they've been enduring, right? During this, I want us to be really thoughtful and careful. Um, and I think Rachel alluded to it briefly, but I want us to be thoughtful and careful about, you know, alluding or saying that they're that that this services are limited. They are. But as Rachel also stated, our advocates and the resources available to survivors will be there if survivors need to reach out. They get to make that decision, but we will do as a collective, and I don't mean NCADB generally, but I mean as, as those that work in this, this field of work, we will do all that we can to support survivors. And quite frankly, particularly when, when there's a firearm present, we intend to, to do all that we can from, from practice to policy to make sure that, that they're safe. To piggyback off what Ruth said, I also, since I'll put on my director of public policy hat that I, I guess I never really took off, it's really important in this time to support our domestic violence programs financially. We know that we're seeing a decrease in volunteer hours because people are practicing social distancing um, in times of economic crisis. We often see a decrease in charitable giving. And so a lot of our advocacy right now is really focused on making sure that money gets out to our direct service providers, to the advocates, to the shelters, to the people who are providing these services for victims and survivors so that they can, for example, provide hotel accommodations, so they can shift to providing services remotely while also utilizing software that maintains victims and survivors' confidentiality. So there are a lot of expenses that we are seeing, um, increased expenses in some cases. Um, And so we have been working very closely with Congress to get more money out um, to direct service providers in the supplemental appropriations bills. We're very happy to see an extra $45 million for the Family Violence Prevention and Services Act and $2 million for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. But what we also know is that's just a drop in the bucket. Right. Um, And so we are going to be asking for more resources also in this uh, phase four stimulus supplemental appropriations. I feel far more comfortable referring as a starting place for anyone that might be seeking safety resources, information uh, about their own safety. We like referring them to the hotline. In fact, we, we do refer them to the hotline who has the means by which to get them to the right place, whether it's the community domestic violence program, the police, whatever that might be. If it's family, friends, folks who are concerned about COVID and the issues that that DV programs are are presented with and advocates are presented with. If family and friends want to know more information about how to help a survivor, if there are resources that anyone's looking for about how to respond to domestic violence and COVID in their own community in general or otherwise, then we certainly refer people to our own website, uh, which is a wealth of resources. So those are, in my mind, those are the, the top two. And then, you know, sometimes survivors don't want to call a big, long number to get the help that they need. The hotline offers a chat service if they feel safe using their phone or computer. And then their, their state coalition 
coalition can also get them to the most appropriate direct service program providers. So there's a couple of avenues by which they can seek safety and, and help if, they, if they'd like to do that. And again, if, if resources and information such as disarm DB and those types of things are what you need, then we would certainly direct folks to our website. Um, and just uh, if anybody's listening who needs this information, the number for the hotline is 800-799-7233. Um, if you want to text, text love is to 22522, or you can chat online at thehotline.org. And then, of course, our website for other information and resources is uh, www.ncadv.org. Well, and thank you. There will be links, as always, to everything to here in the Perfect. description of the podcast. So if people are like me and not very great at writing things down right, great. in a quick way. Great, great. Um, yeah. And I would also honestly um, suggest if folks do have an interest in getting involved and in particularly, obviously, I work in the public policy space, but to sign up for our action alerts. It's both a, an opportunity to understand and, and know what's going yeah. on at the federal level on issues related to domestic violence, but also ways that, that individuals can get involved in helping push for federal legislative action. You know, what do we have to do? You know, this is a this is a very unfair question, but what do we have to do, you know, as a whole, as a society, as America, to to help fight domestic violence and, and gun violence during this time? What would you like to see come out of this situation? I think it's imperative during COVID that there is an understanding that if we're going to close Hobby Lobby and we're going to close Colds and we're going to close almost everything but a grocery store, I guess I just do not understand the essential need for gun stores. And um, the increase of accidental suicide and domestic violence-related gun deaths will increase, I guarantee it, as long as, as we designate them for some states that are as essential um, places of business. I, I don't understand. And, I, you know, it's not a laughing matter, but unless we can, can shoot coronavirus, I, I just have a little bit of not understanding. And then the second thing would be a really comprehensive background checks. And I don't know that that can occur while we're going through covid but it sure does um, amplify why we've been fighting for comprehensive background checks, right? Because here we are in this time and, and um, we're seeing more first-time gun buyers. And what does that mean? And are they getting the background checks that should and hopefully uh, prevent something bad from happening? So, yeah, that, those are the two things that I hope we don't lose sight of now and as we move through COVID. Uh, from my perspective. So I guess I have two things to add. Um, obviously, one of our top priorities is closing the boyfriend loophole. And this is something that is not necessarily, again, um, COVID related. We are trying to be very careful to kind of draw a distinction between COVID supplemental funding and kind of some policy issues. But in the policy realm, you know, a dating violence prohibitor, a stalking prohibitor, you know, changing some, uh, making some technical fixes to the existing prohibitors, I think is, is really important. And, you know, just dismantling the patriarchy and systems of oppression, which is just so easy. Um, <laughs> just a cinch. Yeah, that's why I said it was kind of an unfair question. <laughs> but Let's all make that happen, like yesterday. <laughs> you know, down, down with the patriarchy. Right. Um, but... 
when you dismantle <laughs> systemic oppression and the patriarchy, you're also dismantling the uh, systems that really promote power and control. And this idea that certain people are entitled to power and control over other people, you know, so if we want to see a society with less intimate partner violence, you know, there are things that we do legislatively, but there are also things that we need to do culturally and building an equitable society. But again, like that's no problem. We'll get that done. By yeah. <laughs> it's on easily, my to-do list. <laughs> right? Easily done by the end of the month. It's right. fine. Yeah, not a problem. <laughs> the president's really it. supportive of that initiative. <laughs> No, no, not really. <laughs> um, and I think, I think from my perspective, that that is a really tough question to answer. But I will tell you that, you know, we're talking a lot about DV and COVID. Between Rachel and I, we've had a lot of questions about DV and COVID. And my, my hope is that we don't end this conversation when and if we get through COVID partially well or whatever that looks like. Domestic violence goes on without COVID. We lose women every day to firearms and domestic violence. I want to keep having the conversation about domestic violence and especially about the intersection of domestic violence and firearms. I appreciate that we're talking about it right now um, across the spectrum. I've been busier this past two weeks than, than I would ever like to be busy again. But I also know that there is room to talk about this outside of COVID. And as I said, NCADB has made it a priority to talk about the and address the issues of uh, domestic violence and firearms. So let's keep the conversation going until we done something significant to reduce domestic violence and particularly domestic violence as a result of firearms. Exactly. I, I want to thank you both so, so much for coming on. This was wonderful. Thank oh, you. I know so it's, it's just the beginning of a conversation that, as you've said, is much longer and needs to happen more, but, but thank yeah. you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you, JJ, for shining a, a light in, on this really important issue. So in this week's Unbelievable But, uh, we're going back to the time before COVID-19 and taking you to a karaoke bar in Florida, where an intoxicated man allegedly became upset with a karaoke song in the bar and decided to, quote, unquote, go after the singer. So shortly after midnight, a drunken man took issue with the song that a singer had decided to play. I think we've all been at karaoke and, you know, been upset that someone's attempting, you know, like the wind beneath my wings without the range. What most of us don't do, though, is what he did, which was attempt to confront the singer, end up falling down, and then allegedly start waving around a black nine millimeter Glock 19 that he pulled from his waistband. Now, luckily he was able to be removed from the bar before law enforcement arrived and no one was injured or hurt. But I think this story just underscores how very much guns do not belong in bars or in the hands of intoxicated individuals. Now, this week's news wrap up is actually all about looking back and remembering some of those who have been killed by gun violence. On March 31st, 1981, Jim the Bear Brady was shot in the head during the assassination attempt on President Reagan. That one bullet changed the course of history, igniting the fight for the Brady Bill 
and shaping the modern movement to end gun violence in America. Brady initially survived, but his death in 2014 was ruled a homicide caused by that gunshot wound. Also on March 31st, but in 1995, the Queen of Tejano music and the first Latino artist to have a predominantly Spanish language album, Dreaming of You, debut and peak at number one on the U.S. Billboard charts. Selena Quintanilla Perez was shot and killed by a former employee who was later found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Again, also on March 31st, but in 2019, Aramaeus Joseph Ascadon, professionally known as Nipsey Hussle, an American rapper, activist, and entrepreneur, was fatally shot outside of his store, Marathon Clothing, in South Los Angeles by a 29-year-old man who had confronted Hustle earlier in the day. The man was later arrested and charged with Nipsey's murder. On April 1st, 1984, beloved singer-songwriter and musician Marvin Gaye was fatally shot twice by his father at their house in the West Adams District of Los Angeles, California, following an altercation with his father after he intervened in an argument between his parents. On April 2nd, 2012, a gunman shot at people inside Oikos University, a predominantly Korean Christian college in Oakland, California. Within a few hours, the number of reported fatalities reached seven. It's been the deadliest mass shooting in the city's history. Finally, on April 4th, 1968, at 6.01 p.m., a clergyman, Nobel Peace Prize winner, and famed civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., was fatally shot and murdered at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. He was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital, where he died almost an hour later. His assassin was arrested in June of that year and sentenced to 99 years in the Tennessee State Penitentiary. Looking for more gun violence prevention content? Try Audible. Audible is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 250,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products with free apps for every type of phone and device. So you can access your books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. Right now, I'm listening to Gunfight by Adam Winkler, so I can spend this time learning more about the District of Columbia v. Heller case. Brady listeners can get a special 30-day trial and free audiobook by going to www.audible.com slash Brady at home. That's slash Brady at home. Thanks for listening. As always, Brady's life-saving work in Congress, the courts, and communities across the country is made possible thanks to you. For more information on Brady or how to get involved in the fight against gun violence, please like and subscribe to the podcast, get in touch with us at bradyunited.org, or on social at Brady Buzz. Be brave and remember, take action, not sides. Mm-hmm.